Welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 107, when we go back, back to, the to the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and by buckling up. Mm, it's the law. Yeah. Because this week, we're going to take a look at American Honda Presents DC Comics' Supergirl in cooperation with the U.S. Department of Transportation's National Safety Belt Campaign. This was part of that uh, PSA uh, flood that DC got in around uh, 1984. That's right, yep. <laughs> Story was uh, written by uh, Joe Orlando, Barry Marks, and Robin Lauren Fleming, R- Robert Lauren Fleming. Dialogue, Andy Helfer. Cover and interior artist, Angela Torres. Letterer, John Costanza. Colorist, Joe Orlando. Editor, Barry Marks. Special consultants, Tony Harrington and Rick Smith. Executive coordinator, Steve Warner. Advisor, Steve Jacobs. Cover price, Zippo. They hey. gave these books away. Yeah, I think mainly, it seems like they gave them away probably in, at a driving class, right? In high schools or something. I get that impression from the uh, inside cover. Probably. I, I, I think they, they probably gave them to any any schools that wanted them. Yeah, that's true. Them. Anybody that would take them, you could have them. <laughs> yes, please, take a bundle. Uh, we're going to start by talking about Joe Orlando. Uh, Joseph Orlando, born April 4th, 1927 in Bari, Italy. His family emigrated to the United States in 1929, where Joe attended art classes at a neighborhood boys club when he was seven years old. He continued there until he was 14 and won prizes annually in their competitions, including a John Wanamaker bronze medal. In 1941, he began attending the School of Industrial Art, which is later the High School of Art and Design, and he studied illustration there. While there, he met, along with uh, other future comics professionals, uh, Carmine Infantino, and they would remain close friends. While Orlando was still a student, he drew his first published illustrations. Those were scenes of of Mark Twain's The Prince and the Pauper for a high school textbook. After his high school graduation, Orlando would enter the U.S. Army, and he was assigned to the military police. And this was followed by 18 months in Europe. After his 1947 discharge, uh, Joe returned to New York and began to study at the Art Students League on the GI Bill. He entered the comic book field in 1949 when the packager Lloyd Jacket, or Jacquet, assigned him, I think it's Jacket, assigned him to draw for the Catholic-oriented book Treasure Chest. He received $9 a page for this, not too bad. At the the Jacket studio, he met fellow artist Tex Blaisdell, and the two teamed later on many projects. In the early 1950s, he was an assistant to Wally Wood on stories for several publishers, including Fox, Youthful, Avon and EC Comics before becoming a regular staff artist at EC in the summer of 1951. He earned $25 a page at EC. Now that's good money, my friend. Really good Uh, money for the time, sure. Heck yeah. Uh, Especially a young guy like that. Uh, Absolutely. After EC, from 1956 to 1959, he drew Classics Illustrated Adaptations. In addition to many contributions to EC's MAD from 1960 to 69, Orlando also scripted the Little Orphan Annie comic strip beginning in 1964. He and Tex Blaisdell worked on that together. For Warren Publishing's black and white horror comics magazine Creepy, debuting in 1964, Orlando was not only an illustrator but also a story editor on early issues. His credit on the first issue, Masthead read Story Ideas, Joe Orlando. 
1966, Orlando and writer E. Nelson Bridwell created the parody superhero team, The Inferior Five, in Showcase Number 62, June 1966, cover date, and the pinnacle of comic books had been reached. No, I'm not kidding. <laughs> uh, Orlando launched the Swing with Scooter series with writers Barbara Friedlander and Jack Miller in July 1966. After 16 years of freelancing, Orlando was hired full-time in 1968 by DC Comics, where he was the editor of a full line of comic books, which included Adventure Comics, All-Star Comics, Anthro, Bat-Lash, House of Mystery, Plop, Swamp Thing, and The Witching Hour. Uh, Worth noting that Joe also scripted several of these titles. In 1971, Orlando and DC publisher Carmine Infantino traveled to the Philippines on a recruiting trip for more artists, and this led to a tremendous influx of Filipino talent. Uh, During the 1980s, Orlando began teaching at the School of Visual Arts, uh, continuing as an art instructor there for many years. By 1980, Joe was made vice president of DC Comics in charge of special projects. This included the creation of art for t-shirts and other licensed products, negotiating with such companies as American Greeting and and Tops, working with editor Joey Cavallari on Looney Tunes magazine, and supervising production of trading cards, Six Flags logos, uh, DC character style guides, and other items, and this very comic book. Hey, look at that. How about that? Let's meet Mr. Barry Marks, born January 25th, 1956, in New York City. He attended the Columbia University graduate writing program in the late 70s. Now, here's an anecdote by author Pete Churches about Barry, who is now deceased. He said, Barry went to movies all the time, a lot more than I did, and when I saw him, it was often to catch a film. This particular incident happened in the mid-80s, but I can't remember what film we saw that day. We had gotten to the theater at least 10 or 15 minutes early and were chatting. At one point, I told him about a guy I had seen earlier that day who had the most dreadful toupee. It was precariously perched atop his head, and, and though it was probably meant to be dirty blonde, it was so dirty it was practically snot green. All toupees are lousy, Barry said. There's no such thing as a good toupee. They all look phony. How can you be so sure, I asked. A good toupee wouldn't look like a toupee, so you'd never notice it. No way, he said. I'm sure there's no such thing as a good toupee. We split hairs about toupees a little while longer, and then moved on to other topics. Then the lights dimmed and the previews started. I don't think they showed as many previews back then as they do now, and they didn't, and pretty soon the film began. Shortly after the opening credits had run, only a couple of minutes into the film, four people in the front row in front of us, two couples, began filing out. We both wondered what was going on. Had they decided so soon that they didn't like the film, or they already seen most of it and wanted to catch the opening credits? We found out what was up soon enough. One of the guys leaned over to Barry and in an incensed, menacing tone said, Next time you feel like talking about toupees, you're going to have yourself a set of false teeth. I could tell that Barry was shaken. I had no idea there was a guy with a toupee in front of us, he said. You see, I said, he had one of the good ones. Uh-huh. Hey, there you go. And this issue is his first recorded professional work in comics. So that's pretty much all we got. Robert Lauren Fleming was born November 5th, 1956. Uh, we're going to say in America until we hear differently. He was worked for DC Comics initially as a proofreader and later as a writer. And according to some sources, for a brief time in the mailroom, Fleming said, I found out pretty quickly it was kind of a closed shop, pretty hard to break in as a writer. It was really difficult to get a story sold. Editor Julia Schwartz told me to go home and not to think about any ideas. 
He told me twice in case I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> Fleming's first uh, published comic story was String Out, that appeared in House of Mystery number 316 from May 1983 cover date. Robert and artist Trevor Von Eden, they would create Thriller in 1983. Of that, Fleming recalls, when I finished the pitch, it took I took it to four or five editors. They wouldn't even look at it. So I took it to Dick Giordano. This was jumping the chain of command. He read the thing, and 15 minutes later, he bought it. DC Vice President Paul Levitz read it a few days later, and he signed off on it, too. Fleming left the series as of its seventh issue due to difficulties with DC Editorial and Trevor Von Eden. And that probably freed him up to write some more things, including, perhaps, this very comic book. Yeah. Now, now let's meet Angelo Torres, born April 14th, 1932, in San... Santorce. Santorce, Puerto Rico. Uh, Torres was uh, friends with artist Al Williamson in the early 50s, and he would occasionally assist him on work for EC Comics. His first solo EC story was called An Eye for an Eye, and it appeared in Incredible Science Fiction number 33. That had a January-February 1956 cover date. That was rejected by the Comics Code and didn't see print for the first time until 1971. In it, a man and a woman fight back hordes of monsters on a foreign world or in some far-flung, far-flung future, only to be murdered by other humanoids because the protagonists have a third eye between their shoulder blades. Shocking stuff. I can see why totally. they want to keep that back from people. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, when the EC Comics line failed after the enforcement of the Comics Code, Torres went to Atlas Comics and drew a number of short stories for their mystery titles in 1956-57, to such as Astonishing, Spellbound, Uncanny Tales, Marvel Tales, and many others. Torres later worked for Warren Publishing under editor Archie Goodwin, contributing to art on 20 stories for Creepy, Eerie, and Blazing Combat from 1964 through 67. From October 1969 until April 2005, he drew the secondary parody feature in Mad Magazine, whereas Mort Drucker always draws the first one, and it's almost always a film. The second one is usually a television show, but, you know, there are some... A lot of, uh, you know, exceptions to that rule, but he was always the second one. And somewhere in between that time, he drew this comic book. Mm. Uh, It is presented to us, of course, by American Honda, so we would be remiss not to tell you a little bit about this uh, company. Honda Motor Company Limited is a Japanese public multinational conglomerate corporation primarily known as a manufacturer of automobiles, aircraft, motorcycles, and power equipment. In the 1930s, Soichiro Honda worked as a mechanic at the Art Shokai Garage, where he tuned cars and entered them in races. In 1937, Honda began making piston rings working out of the Art Shokai Garage. He eventually established an automated process that allowed unskilled labor to make these rings, which were then supplied to Toyota. During World War II, Soichiro Honda supported the war effort for the, you know, Axis powers, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, Honda's piston ring-making company was placed under control of the Ministry of Commerce and Industry, called the Ministry of Munitions after 1943. This was at the start of World War II. Uh, Soichiro, Soich, bleh, Soichiro Honda <laughs> was demoted from president to senior managing director after, to- after Toyota took a 40% stake in the company. Honda's company also helped automate the manufacture of aircraft propellers and other parts. One of Honda's factories was bombed by the U.S., and the other collapsed during an earthquake in 1945, so he sold out to Toyota and formed the Honda Technical Research Institute in October of 1946. 
Beginning with motorcycles, this team continued to innovate vehicle technology, changing names to Honda Motor Company in 1949. And now they're poised to be one of the linchpin corporations whose innovations will result in a complete robot takeover within, what, next five, six, seven, eight years? Something like that, I would think. Yeah, they're, they're, Soon. they're moving at a good clip, so we can look forward to that. If that's definitely coming up. But for right now, we're going to jump right into American Honda Presents DC Comics Supergirl. Uh, the cover depicts Superman watching a very large television screen, like 20 by 20 feet big. It's tremendous. And on that screen, Supergirl is holding a little girl in a pink dress, and she's pulling a man from a car that is filling rapidly with water. Uh, all of this will make sense, sort of. Hmm. Now, on the inside cover is a message from Elizabeth, Elizabeth Hanford Dole, Secretary of the United States Department of Transportation. And she says... I know that you're all looking forward to getting your driver's licenses soon, but driving a car is a big responsibility. So here are a couple of questions for you to think about. How important do you feel it is to buckle up your safety belt when you get into a car? Do you think you or any of your friends will ever be involved in an accident? Maybe you've never thought about it, but you should. Every 10 seconds, someone is injured in a crash, and every 10 minutes, someone is killed. You can expect to be in an accident at least once in your life. If you use your safety belt, you more than double your chances of surviving. Oh, boy. You know, every kid reading this loves statistics, oh, right? Oh, I bet he went out and tested every one of them, and whoever read this... <laughs> Now, Elizabeth Dole has had a long political career spanning 36 years and eight U.S. presidents. It ended in 2008 when she was defeated as the incumbent senator from North Carolina by Democrat Kay Hagan. She served as the United States Secretary of Transportation from 1983 through 87 under Ronald Reagan, and she was the first woman ever to be appointed to that position. In that role, she was the first woman to have served as the head of a branch of the United States military, as the United States Coast Guard was under the Department of Transportation at the time. During her tenure, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration had mandated the installation of a, of a center high-mounted stop lamp on new cars. These are sometimes called Liddy lights in her recognition. And uh, you might know these. These used to be stuck in the back windows of cars at the time, like to, remember, to retrofit them? Mm. Uh, yep. these, these days, the entire back of the car practically turns red when you lights have up. the brake yeah. pedal. You know, it's, like, <laughs> it's like a disco show. But, yeah, it used to be that was a big deal to have that installed. Uh, she worked with MADD, Mad Mothers Against Drunk Driving, to pass laws withholding federal highway funding from any state that had a drinking age below 21. The state government of South Dakota opposed the drinking age law and sued Dole in the case South Dakota versus Dole, but the Supreme Court ruled in favor of her. And yes, of course, she is the wife of former senator and presidential candidate Bob Dole. They would get married on December 6th, 1975. Hmm. Into the story, the opening splash page depicts Supergirl surveying some damage resulting from an earthquake in Southern California. The quake tore up a section of freeway, causing some accidents and also creating a lot of traffic. Caption reads, It only takes a moment for the earth to buckle, tossing man and machine recklessly about, for the ground to crack, sending hundreds of automobiles careening into one another, for the victims to cry out and be heard by super-sensitive ears, 1,500 miles away, and for those cries to be answered by Supergirl. At just that moment, a truck is hurtling toward a break in the freeway. Truck driver goes, Gotta step on it. Can't let this quake shake up this rig. I hate to think what would happen if 
Oh, no! A wide beam of red light settles onto the broken end of the freeway, somehow bending it into the incline of a ramp. What the? Some kind of hot light bending the road straight up? And Supergirl thinks to herself, There wasn't time to fly down to save that truck, but a little heat vision brings it to me. Is that how heat vision works now? I don't know. It was a tractor beam, but that's interesting. Yeah, All right, close cool. enough, right? Uh, now Supergirl catches the truck as it launches and and sets it down safely. The truck driver explains that it's lucky Supergirl was able to save him because he's carrying an explosive load that would have blown half the value off the map. Ah, but I had to make that time. That's why. I... <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe this isn't the best guy to give the explosive load to. Probably right? not. No, probably no. somebody who would stay, you know, would be a little safer. Who might pull over during an earthquake? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, now, it's probably past due time to explain some things about pre-crisis Supergirl here. Uh, Kara Zor-El first appeared in Action Comics number 252, May 1959, cover date, by Otto Binder and Al Plastino. And we actually detailed that issue in our second ever episode of Cosmic Treadmill, available in our archives. She was a Kryptonian from the city of Argo, which accidentally separated from Krypton before the planet exploded. Then this chunk cruised through space with its own atmosphere in a convenient bubble. Still made from the same stuff as Krypton, Argo starts turning to kryptonite. The city citizens used lead plates to cover the ground and shield themselves from radiation. One day, a meteor shower rained down on Argo and punctured the lead plating on the ground. So, the folks on Argo, or in Argo, began to die. As a last-ditch effort, Kara Zor-El's parents sent her off in a solo rocket to Earth so she could meet her cousin, Kal-El, who we know as Superman. Kara was born on Argo after Krypton exploded, hence why she is uh, so is depicted as younger than Superman. Yeah, they've come up with other reasons more recently for why that happened, but that was the reason. Many other reasons, yeah. In the long ago. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Superman is thrilled to meet a relative and native from his home planet. Naturally, she's got the same power set as her cousin. So he's so happy to see her, he sets her up with a brown wig and a secret identity, Linda Lee, so she can live in Midvale Orphanage without revealing her abilities. Isn't that nice? It's such, it's such a nice orphanage, though, right? <laughs> it is a very... Oh, you gotta, you gotta listen to that episode. That orphanage <laughs> is a wreck, but she cleans up her room, bless her heart. Uh, she would pop up at Superman titles regularly after that, always saving Jimmy or Lois in secret ways, or performing Superman's feats when he was out of town. She beats the Legion of Superheroes in Action Comics number 276, May 1961, cover date, by Jerry Siegel and Jim Mooney, which begins a long will-they-won't-they relationship with Brainiac 5. Eventually, Supergirl is adopted by the Danvers family, and her alter ego becomes Linda Lee Danvers. Now, around this t- around the same time, Superman thinks it's uh, about time to reveal his secret weapon, Supergirl, to the world. And this happens in Action Comics number 285, February 1962, cover date, by Jerry Siegel and Jim Mooney. Over the years, Kara's held several jobs, a student counselor, a news reporter, and a television actor. And she was in, a, was it Lonely Hearts? or Something like this, yeah. It was, it was, it was, a, it was actually the name of an old romance title. That's what it was. It was yeah. a romance title. Like, it might have been Young it, Romance, it even, soap. I'm not sure. Might have been. Yeah. Now, during the second volume of Supergirl, which is known as The Daring New Adventures of Supergirl, though after uh, after half the series, it would change back to just being Supergirl. That was uh, issues 13 through 23. Uh, running cover dates November 1982 to September 1984, written by Paul Kupperberg and penciled by Carmine Infantino, uh, Carol would move to Chicago in order to attend college. And hey, that's just where we find her now. That's right. This is actually in continuity, sort of. Uh, so, <laughs> meanwhile, 15 1,500 miles away, 
in a suburb of Chicago. Supergirl's friend Steve Gordon is at his job, which is some fast food establishment. He's chuckling at a picture of an explosion. Uh, Steve is looking at the uh, Battle of Neptune scrapbook. Uh, this is some kind of promo item for a blockbuster movie. His uh, co-worker says, Oh, oh, let me see, please. Come on, Steve. It's only a movie. Only a movie? Battle for Neptune is the greatest science fiction film ever made. And I should know. I've seen it 20 times. As a matter of fact, I got two passes for an advanced screening of the sequel tonight. And I'm going with Linda Danvers. Just then, Steve's manager pops in with a telephone held in the crook of his neck. Says, Gordon, get your tail over here. Your fries are roasting. And you got a phone call. So Steve grabs the phone receiver. Uh, hello? Steve, it's Linda. Listen, about tonight. Something came up and I just can't make it. Please don't be disappointed. I'll make it up to you. Gotta fly now. Bye. We see a scene of Supergirl using a phone from a police car still on the freeway that snarled with traffic. And the cop is standing, like, right next to her while she makes the call. I mean, you gotta yeah. wonder what he thinks about all this. What's going on here? <laughs> Does he call her Linda? I wonder, you know? Oh, I, hey there, Linda. He probably pops his head after that. <laughs> we, we pop back over to Steve, who's thinking, Linda's always standing me up at the last minute. Well, this time, I'm not staying home. I'm going, and I'll take Ellen with me. That evening, Steve heads out for the movie with his date, his little sister. Aww. His dad says, It was nice of you to offer to take your sister along tonight, Stephen. I know how much she likes being with you. Have a good time and drive carefully. Come on, Ellen. It's getting late. Hop in. Okay, Stevie. Bye, Dad. They get into Steve's hatchback two-door, and when Steve starts the ignition, the seatbelt reminder alarm starts to buzz. Come on, Stevie. You know that what that sound means. Put on your seatbelt. Listen, we're only a mile away from the theater. The buzzing will stop any second. But Dad always puts his seatbelt on. He says it's important to... Mm-hmm. Did Dad mention how he thinks it's important to drain a bottle of Jack Daniels per week? Because he's doing that too, kid. You know what <laughs> I'm saying? Seems like it, yeah. <laughs> uh, the buzzing eventually stops, and it looks like smooth sailing from here. Yep, nothing bad could happen at all. They're almost to the theater already and driving real slowly. These two are safe as houses. Mm-hmm. Just then, a car comes barreling down the street and smashes into the driver's side of Steve's oh, car. Oh, caption reads, but it only takes a moment. A second, an instant, an eternity. Steve and Ellen both bump their heads and everything goes black. A crowd gathers around the accident, horrified at the carnage. One man says that no one could survive an accident like this. But then the driver that smashed into Steve's crawls from his totaled car. He says, Ah, my head, what happened? Then he sees the damage he's caused. Oh my god, inside that car, they're just kids. It's my fault. I murdered them, and all because of a few drinks. Hey, 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 don't blame the drinks. That killer's rage is all yours. Really, now? I didn't mean to hurt them. I didn't even see them. I was just coming home from an office party. Once he work at the strip club? State Trooper says, you'd better come along with us now. Steve and Ellen are strapped onto gurneys, and they're being loaded into the back of an ambulance. 
Please, please, God, let them live. Let them live. <laughs> we jump ahead one week later, and Steve is in a coma. Ellen, however, is fine. Seems there's no physical trauma to Steve's body or brain, and they don't know why he's comatose. Uh, Linda Danvers sits in the hospital waiting room, thinking to herself. I heard the doctors say Steve was delirious all night, mumbling something about killing Ellen. I know how much Steve loves her. Maybe the idea that he hurt her is too terrible for him to live with. Or maybe, just maybe, you ever consider that he might want to kill Ellen? It kind of makes more sense <laughs> what he's saying. It seems like it, yeah. <laughs> now, Steve's parents show up in the waiting room. Mrs. Gordon, I, I'm so sorry. Steve and I, we were... I don't know what to say. Steve's mom goes, It's all right, Linda. There's nothing to be said. Yeah, you murdered our son by proxy is all. <laughs> There's nothing anyone can do. We just have to wait. But Supergirl, she doesn't do waiting. So she flies off to the Fortress of Solitude, where she hangs out with a variety of animals at Superman's personal interplanetary zoo. Yeah, so we, we do mean a wide variety here. Uh, we see a couple of goats, a flamingo, some kind of giant mice. I wouldn't think they could all be in the same pen, but I guess it's fine. I don't know. I, I guess the food chain is weird. You know? yeah, I figured really? uh, <laughs> that goat might take a bite out of something. Uh, while she's playing with these uh, with the pets here, uh, Superman shows up. Supergirl says, Cal, I'm so happy to see you. Kara, I didn't expect you. Is something wrong? I just needed a place to be alone, a place to think. So, you came to meditate in the interplanetary zoo again, eh? Did you pay the suggested admission fee? Yeah, the honor system doesn't work. <laughs> yes, and I've come to a decision. I'm through being Supergirl. From now on, I want to be called Power Girl. Uh, that'll work for a little uh, while, but we'll see. <laughs> As if it's not a confusing enough. Uh, now, Supergirl explains to Clark that she was supposed to be on a date with Steve, and that could have saved him from this car crash. And if I can't at least save the people I care for, what good are these powers I have? Even we have our limitations, Kara. You must learn to accept that. But I believe there's something we can do to help your friend. So Superman takes Supergirl over to some highly technical bed. Frankly, it looks more like a torture device from a James Bond movie, right? But what the heck? So much of Superman's furniture looks like it torture does, devices, actually, doesn't it? It does, you're right. She <laughs> <laughs> says, I was given this device by a race of empaths some years ago. It provides me with a means to communicate with them. With it, I could enter their minds, and they can enter mine. I've since discovered that it works on humans, too. Uh, incidentally, don't ask Lois Lane if she's had any recent dreams about me rifling through her underwear drawer, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Gotta use this thing. Uh, Superman goes on to warn Kara that the sender's mind can be trapped if the receiver dies during transmission, as if their soul has died. Superman says he'll hop in the machine, and Supergirl can monitor his adventures through a large view screen. But Supergirl has other ideas. Wait! No! I'm going! Kara, you know I can't let you. Sorry, Cal. I've got to do this. For Steve and myself. And so Supergirl hops into Michael Jackson's cryogenic bed, and Superman fires it up. And so Superman watches his cousin's mind as his cousin's mind is pulled inward by an unseen force as powerful as the fiercest whirlpool. He sees her mind rocket across a howling, frigid plain. Without effort. Without control. 
She is brought closer to the heart of her friend's subconscious. She is a guest here, an unseen visitor in a world constructed wholly by a guilt-ridden teenager's tortured mind. If she is lucky, she can salvage his soul. It was established earlier in the story that Steve Gordon is a real film fanatic. So now in the world of Steve's dreams, they're all rendered as popular movie genres. Is that how comas work? It's just like a series of dreams and a deep sleep? Is that it? It sounds pleasant, you know? (laughs) It seems just like a deep nap. You wake up feeling, you know, refreshed, reinvigorated. You might just want, you know, a toothbrush. I'll be honest, I could use a coma myself, I think. (laughs) Maybe maybe like a couple of days, it doesn't sound too bad. Uh, So in this dream, uh, the first one, Steve has cast himself as some kind of post-apocalyptic warrior. In a brutal world that still has cars. It's kind of like Mad Max, except everything is frozen here. For the time being, Supergirl just observes, and so do we. Here, Steve is Gordon, G-O-R-D-O-N, and he is tasked by the High Lord with getting some fuel for his tribe. He's told to watch out for the marauders along the route. The High Lord says, Here are the keys, Gordon. Our last drops of fuel have already been placed within the vehicle. You are our last hope. I will pray for you, Gordon. Good luck. The vehicle is a sci-fi version of Steve's hatchback. Also, it hovers. Nice. Steve goes, Don't worry, High Lord. I won't let you down. The fuel's as good as ours. Steve drives away from his camp. Marauders are watching him do so from a high cliff. Once Steve gets going, Ellen appears in his car. Hey, Gordon! You forgot something! What are you doing here? Trying to protect you! Now buckle up your seatbelt before something terrible happens! No, I can't! What would happen if the Marauders attack and I crashed? Or if the car fell through the ice? I'd be trapped! Supergirl is sitting in the back seat, but neither Steve nor Ellen are aware of her. She thinks to herself, He's got it all wrong. I've got to do something. She tries to get Steve's attention. Steve, listen to me. If you don't buckle up, you might be knocked unconscious. Then you'd be trapped for sure. Wearing your seatbelt, you've got a fighting chance. To which Steve says, what? Despite Steve's outburst, it appears that Steve cannot hear her. Supergirl thinks, he, he's totally ignoring me. And since this is his fantasy... I've got no choice but to let him play it out. Then the trio are beset by marauders. Yeah, these guys have got that post-punk dress and various bits of junk look about them. You know, you would expect this from a post-apocalyptic wasteland. Uh, The marauders surround their car. Yes, the boss goes, Slow down, boys. We're in no rush. Let's give the others a chance first. Driver, send out your first attack wave, please. Glider one, attack! Thank you! You know, they call these guys marauders, but they, they seem awfully polite to one another. And we get please and thank you. <laughs> really? <Yeah. now. laughs> the golden, golden words era. Now, the, a big guy wearing an eye patch skis up alongside the car and throws a grappling hook into the front wheel well, and it makes a big clung sound. Gordon, what was that noise? Probably nothing important. Came from your side. Take a look out the window and tell me what you see. Okay. Ellen looks out the window, and the cragged face of the guy with the eye patch is grinning right at her. He's got pink teeth. They're very weird. Why? Yeah. Okay. Post- <laughs> Post-apocalyptic <laughs> teeth. Yeah. Uh, now, Steve pulls a lever, building electro charges outside the car, and this zaps the marauder right off. 
The other marauders, pulling up from behind, get into a pileup, trying to avoid the body of their colleague, and this annoys the boss. Fools! Better let the glider die than face me later! The boss is riding on the back of a bulldozer with his blade kept up high. He's got another trick up his sleeve, though. I always save the best for last! The boss presses a button on a remote control, which blows a hole in the ice ahead. I guess that was the best thing he had. Sure. Uh, the boss's bulldozer lowers its blade and pushes Steve's car toward the hole and into the icy water below. All hope seems lost. Then Supergirl busts out of the hole with Ellen and Steve in her arms. So she can interact with them? Uh, like, yeah. Do we do we have like a user's guide for this empath machine? What are the rules here? I have no idea. You know, they, you know, they can interact with them as long as they're dying. Maybe who knows? Maybe. Yeah. Uh, Ellen appears to be fine. Steve, on the other hand, is unconscious. Supergirl lays them out on the ice. Uh, lays him out on the ice. He's dying. Please help him. Only you can do that, Ellen. Talk to him. Shout at him. Just make him know you're all right. Steve, it's me, Ellen. I'm alive. Do you hear me? I'm alive. Please don't die, Steve. Please don't. And in the waking world, Steve is actually dying to the shock of his family. Uh, this is also affecting Supergirl, who writhes in the empath machine at the Fortress of Solitude. Back into Steve's dreams, it looks like he's going on uh, doing an Indiana Jones type of thing here, uh, though he's called Monterey Gordon. Very smart. Uh, it is very smart. Uh, he's in some swampy jungle talking to a man who is dying in his modest hut. And he's got a map. The man says, Beware, Monterey Gordon. They will stop at nothing to get the map. Look what they have done to me. The map? Have you still got it? Yes. I would not give it up. Take it, my friend. And use it to find the sacred jewels to help all mankind. Promise me you will do this. Ah! I promise. <laughs> After a solemn <laughs> burial, Steve, Ellen, and Backseat Kara head out across a rickety bridge in a jeep. Uh, rickety doesn't really even cut it. It's a rope bridge, and some of the slats are falling out as they cross it. <laughs> Keep your eyes open, kid. This jungle is filled with all kind of wild animal. Well, why don't you get to a safe start by buckling your seatbelt? Listen, kid, I agreed to take you along because I like you, but I don't need any advice. Don't you know that it's safer to be thrown clear of a car in case of an accident? Yeah, Plastic Man said so. He wouldn't lie. But that's not true! It... She's right, Steve. If, you've thro if you're thrown free of the car, do you think you're going to land on a pillow somewhere? Wrong. You'll be hitting solid ground and hitting it very hard. Okay, that gives me an idea. Let's just pave the world with pillows. There you go. Problem solved. Ta-da! Bada-bing, bada-boom. Next thing. Now, uh, <laughs> Steve blows them off. Uh, suddenly, he can hear Supergirl for some reason. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, <laughs> how many editors did this book have? Like eight? I know. I, uh, think they, I guess they all got a little snippet. They were and like, consultants? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, as they plow through the jungle, Steve handles all threats. He distracts a pouncing tiger by... Tossing a snake at it. Um, so... I like that scene. It's just like, here you go, kid. <laughs> Someone rolls a boulder off a cliff meant to hit them, but Steve stops in time. You know, if that boulder hit us and you weren't wearing your seatbelt, you might have... Maybe hopped out of the truck before the boulder hit it? Possibly, yeah. Maybe. Oh, no, not that again. Don't you ever give up, kid? Can't you see? 
And just then, some bad guys in another jeep come out of the shadowy brush to collide with Steve's jeep. And one of them has a pith helmet. Yeah, the pith helmet says, Once we broadside that jeep, Monterey Gord will be finished. And that map will lead us straight to those jewels. This is what it takes for Steve Gordon's rapidly dwindling consciousness to realize some very important things. That danger may lurk anywhere. That it's always best to be prepared for it. And getting thrown free of a car wreck is definitely not an advantage. Sure he learned it. Steve dreamt it. Yeah! <laughs> yeah. Now, Steve's Jeep does get slammed, and he's thrown high into the sky because, you know, this vehicle doesn't have a roof. Uh, it's one of those stripped-down summarized models that we, yeah. we were supposing here. <laughs> uh, now, uh, Supergirl catches him before he hits the ground, which is good, because, as we all know, when you die in your dream, you die in real life. That's right, unless you've had a recent cootie shot. So you got <sighs> you got to make sure to get those regularly, folks. Circle, mm-hmm, circle, mm-hmm. dot, dot. Uh, in the Fortress of Solitude, Supergirl is writhing and straining against her straps, clearly in distress. Superman thinks to himself, I don't think I can bear watching this much longer. Every time she comes close to saving him, he just slips away. And plus, the acting in these dreams is terrible. The worst. It seems as though, it seems as though the last time, he was just starting to come to the realization. But it came too late to make a difference. In a Chicago hospital room, Steve is still in a coma. Yeah, doctor goes, for a moment there, I thought he was going to rally. But now he seems to be sinking back even deeper into the coma. Boy, is he going to be well-rested or what? No bags under his eyes after this one. Yeah, he could run a marathon after that. (laughs) I'm not sure what's going on in his head right now, but he's had two setbacks in the last hour. And from the looks of things, he's about to experience a third. Hey, that's our cue. So It is. Steve's next dream is a noir detective story with him as the detective, Steve Gordon. Uh, I mean, that's... As good as any other detective name, I guess. Another wrong. Could have been Slam Gordon. I, you know, he could have gone another ways with it, but that's, you know, not too bad. It's not Engelbert Humperdinck. Uh, True. Steve is sitting at his desk in the darkened office when a brunette dame walks in. We'll let him tell the story through caption. Yes, he's narrating. He says, "It was 2 a.m. Just wrapped up at the Benton case, and I figured I'd get in one last cup of coffee before calling it quits. I was tired, dead tired." But my night wasn't over yet, not by a long shot. Zelda's my secretary, real dedicated. Together, we're up, together we up in a lot of overtime. And Zelda says, Your so-called friend downtown just called. He says Gutman's gonna make his move tonight. Maybe you'd better make yours. And with that, Zelda hands him a gun. I took the liberty of loading this for you. Try not to get yourself killed. I need this job. Steve heads out to his car, now a sensible four-door sedan, in the pouring rain. Because it's noir. Of course, it has to be. And to be honest, <laughs> the whole layout is also very noir. The panels get kind of shorter. It's just not horribly done. Uh, he plans to go downtown and get Gutman. But the minute I got behind my wheel, the wheel, my plans began to change. See, uh, we got Ellen in the car now. Ellen, what are you doing here? I came to warn you! You'd better buckle your seatbelt before you do anything else. Drop it, honey. We're not going far, and we're not going fast. I'm tailing Buttman really slowly. I don't need a belt. From the shadowy backseat, a strangely creepy Supergirl says, It doesn't take much, Steve. And Steve goes back into narration mode. Something was wrong. I couldn't put my finger on it. It wasn't anything tangible. It was just a feeling. But somehow, I knew if I didn't act soon, I wouldn't get another chance. 
And then out loud, Steve goes, look, if it'll shut you up. And Steve fastens his seatbelt with a click. Satisfied. Thanks, Steve. They go downtown to tail Gutman, but uh, he sees them right away and he speeds off. Steve and the gals find themselves on an empty street unsure of where to go. When Gutman lurches from a side street and crashes right into the passenger side, Steve and Ellen are restrained by their safety belts. Hold on, Ellen. Oh, Ellen, are you okay? I, I think so. That's good. And then Steve wakes up from his coma. He's going to really need a toothbrush. I bet his breath is terrible. For sure. Ellen says, Steve? Ellen? And brother and sister hug. Kara is likewise getting out of her sleep number bed, looking very drained. Some weeks later, Steve is being wheeled out of the hospital. He's in a wheelchair now? Yeah, that, that could be some important information. Yeah, right? look, there might have been damage, but he also might have the good health insurance where he gets wheeled right to his car, so we don't know. Oh, that's nice, yeah. yeah. Feels like I've been cooped up in this hospital room forever. Why, but there's at least ten new movies playing that I haven't seen yet. Uh, bad news about that Supergirl film starring Helen Slater, though. It's already out of theaters, kid. Sorry. Yeah, you missed it, pal. <laughs> uh, now, Linda Danvers walks over to, to the car to talk to Steve. I also remember that I owe you at least one movie date. Want to reschedule? Sure, I want to see the sequel to that movie, Breaking. Uh, here it's going to be called uh, Electric Boogaloo. Oh, that sounds good, yeah. Uh, Steve invites Linda to a welcome home party at his house. Uh, she says she'll catch up with him later. Then she takes off as Supergirl. Somehow she did this conspicuously. <laughs> Probably the same way uh, women can remove their bras without taking their shirts off. Just kind of like... Yeah, one fluid motion. Just, yeah. just yeah. away. <laughs> uh, Steve's mom goes, That Linda Danvers is a very nice girl. I know. I'm lucky to be able to see her again. We're, We're all, all lucky, look- Steve. <laughs> welcome back. <laughs> So uh, that was very touching. There were about five or six pages of back matter here, including quizzes and puzzles about fastening your seatbelt. We'll put those in the show notes on weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. Now we thought we'd present a little history of the seatbelt seat. The seatbelt was invented by English engineer George Cayley, and he was a... uh, Hold on a second. Um, There's another issue. another, Another issue of this? Seatbelt safety, yes. Where could they where could they go with this premise that they haven't done already? You have no idea. Well, here it is, in fact. Yeah, American Honda presents DC Comics Supergirl number two from coming from nineteen eighty-six. Story by Joe Orlando, Andrew Helfer, and Barry Marks. Script by Andrew Helfer and Barry Marks, layouts by Jose Delbo, character pencils by Joe Orlando, background pencils by Dave Hunt, inker was Bob Oxner. Letterer's Gaspar. Colors by were Joe and Karen Orlando. Editor Barry Marks. Consultants Tony Harrington and Rick Smith. And the cover of this one... Well, Chris, what is there to say here? It's it's everything the previous issue's cover was not in it's a way, true. right? It's true. Uh, yeah. Supergirl's descending on a traffic accident featuring a wolf driving a truck. <laughs> uh, several dressed pigs in the background. Two kids, a boy and a girl uh, gawking... With an equally surprised dog. The dog is also gawking. He's shocked. And and what they're gawking at is an egg in slacks and a sports coat and a face. And his head is cracked. Uh, Hopefully this makes more sense as we get into the story. So let's dive right in. 
Well, first, the inside cover is another safety message from Elizabeth Hanford Dole, who was still the Secretary of Transportation when this comic came out two years after the other one. It's more or less the same thing as the first issue, but this time she concludes with, Please take the advice of Supergirl and Vince and Larry. Buckle up and get your friends and family to do the same. Now, Vince and Larry are the crash test dummies who we'll be seeing more of in this issue and who were a major marketing device for the Buckle Up movement. Vince and Larry, the crash test dummies, were characters in a series of television PSAs to enforce buckling up. They would be horribly mangled and even dismembered by some controlled car accident and then address the audience directly about buckling up, lest they wind up like, well, you know, them. Right. You get the idea. Uh, this was an enormously popular and successful campaign, a huge victory for seatbelt usage, which went out went up by 59% directly following. I mean, that's a... Big jump, folks. I bet they were very Absolutely. happy with that. Uh, Vince and Larry would have their own fame as a cartoon, video games, a series of toys for which they were renamed the Incredible Crash Dummies, and you guessed it, comic books. Uh, there was a set of three magazine-sized comics. They were released by gas station chain Sitco in 1992. They featured the dummies. Scattered throughout the comics are various puzzles and games to complete. Each book is written and illustrated by Tony and Tony Tallarico. I like to think that they're brothers with the same name, but I don't know. <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah. Uh, titles of these three comics are The Incredible Crash Dummies Hit the Road into the Auto Race Track, The Incredible Crash Dummies Hit the Road to the Great Outdoors, and The Incredible Crash Dummies Hit the Road to the Amusement Park. Each book also features the Morgan Shepherd's Pledge for Life contest, which required kids to mail in a certificate with their information in the signed statement, I pledge to wear my seatbelt at all times while riding in automobiles. Contest featured 1,105 winners drawn at random. Now, the grand prize had five winners. That expired October 1st, 1993. That was a three-night, four-day Orlando vacation, including accommodations at Buena Vista Palace in the Walt Disney World Village, rental car, Walt Disney World four-day world passes, and $500 in spending money. First prize, of which there were 100 winners, was $500 in Tyco toys, including incredible crash dummies, radio-controlled cars, Little Mermaid, and more. Second prize, another, oh, it's actually 1,000 winners for this one, Crash Car with Dummies action figure. Uh, also, three issues of the Incredible Crash Dummies were produced by Harvey Comics, cover dated December 1993 through February 1994. Uh, Harvey Comics pretty much ceased publishing around that time. That was it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with a bang. So, uh, you know, we just have to say it's a little weird to see Supergirl here in this issue. <laughs> uh, when the first issue came out, Supergirl had an ongoing series coming from DC Comics, though it would be canceled by June of that year, but it was happening. And uh, also the aforementioned Supergirl film was imminent. I mean, uh, I think that obviously kind of had something to do with all of this. Uh, and uh, though that film didn't do very well and may have actually contributed to Supergirl's comic book being cut from the schedule. In 1986, Supergirl had died the previous year in Christ's on Infinite Earths number 7, October 1985, cover date by Wolfman and Perez. Now, we know that this book isn't, you know, quote, in continuity. Uh, those of you who haven't read it and, you know, don't know the half of that statement. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's not like we need a new seatbelt PSA for the post-crisis DCU. 
just a little morbid as a comics reader in the context of the time that this came out. I mean, I wonder if anybody, I wonder if it's possible that there was like a big Supergirl fan that saw this and they were like, awesome, she's back. And they, she's read it, back. they were like, what in the God is going on? <laughs> she's on what? There's only one Earth now. What is this? Uh, no. <laughs> now, anyway, in this, uh, Linda Danvers is driving a green car. Two brats named Sally and Jack are in the back seat, and also their dog, the uh, creatively named Barco. Amazing uh, Barco. <laughs> yes. Uh, Linda's told a fascinating story, so now the aforementioned three are nodding off. They're falling asleep. <laughs> and they wake up in Motorville. Whoa, this is a place with a freeway uh, with freeway overpasses winding in between the spires of impossible skyscrapers. The street is clogged with cars. Sally, Jack, and Barco find themselves on one side of the freeway as traffic zooms by. Then a crosswalk sign flashes, walk. Sally's ready to run right across the road, but Jack, who is older, is more cautious. He wants to figure out where they are before they go running willy-nilly around. While they argue, the light changes back to don't walk. And Jack goes, oh no, the light's changing. We'll never make it across in time. Then Supergirl swoops in and grabs the kids and their dog, flying them above the snarled cluster of cars. I promised your folks I'd look out for you two today. I wouldn't want you to get lost. Or worse. Besides, you know, they paid me 50 bucks for it in advance. Deal's a deal, Um, yeah. (laughs) Right. Uh, Supergirl takes the kids to Motorville proper, which is clogged with pedestrians and vehicles. Streets lined with fast food chains and construction companies. Not unlike most modern American cities, actually. It actually looks like uh, (laughs) Midtown Manhattan. Could very well be. Uh, Now, Sally sees a site she'd like to take in. At a poster she sees for the amazing dummy show happening that day at 3 o'clock. Jack, look at this poster. Why don't we go? If the show's as wild as this place, we'll have a great time. Well, why don't you just take in the free sites from the street right to here then? I, why are we going to go pay if money it's so for wild show? and great yeah, there. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Jack goes, forget it. How amazing can dummies be? They just sit around all day and do zip. Oh, come on, Jack. Haven't you figured it out yet? In Motorville, nothing's the way it's supposed to be. So... It'll be the amazing, I'll bet the amazing dummies really are amazing. Actually, by your logic, they would not be amazing uh, because they are being called amazing. Yeah, what right? the hell? You know what I mean? You Nothing's just, the way it's supposed to be. You just ruined your own argument there, girl. Sally, Sally, Sally. <laughs> uh, now, uh, Supergirl calls a taxi and one pulls up, being driven by an anthropomorphic egg. Yeah, he says, that's your service. Where are you headed? Everyone piles into the cab. Say, you look familiar. Really? Fred Dumpty's the name. Maybe you'll see me down on Wall Street. I like to sit around down there on my days off. We want to see the amazing dummies. What else? It's the biggest show in town. And you're in luck. I'm the fastest cabbie in town. We'll be there in no time. I'm also the most expensive cabbie in town. Too late to get out, I already clicked the meter. There we go. <laughs> Jack goes, hold it a second, Mr. Uh, Dumpty. We gotta buckle up first. Aw, oh, Jack, Barco and I just want to look out the window. This belt will hold me back. So the little girl is the one who won't wear the seatbelt in this one. Just tell her to wear the damn seatbelt. I, I don't understand, you know what I mean? Just put it on, you know, little girl. Yeah. You don't have any say. <laughs> Supergirl solicits Fred Humpty, clearly an expert, for we- advice on the matter. You're asking me? Nah, I never wear mine. Why bother? I'm a good driver. 
I know this town like the back of my hand. In the very next panel, we see Fred isn't quite the good driver he claimed to be. Uh, he, he's not paying attention, and he's jumped the curb, which, <laughs> so as you might imagine, frightened the pedestrians a little bit. Yeah. Uh, while he's goofing off, Fred drives headlong towards a young mother pushing a baby in a stroller. Uh, he can't stop in time, so Supergirl will have to save the day. She thinks to herself, can't take any chances. He's going too fast. But with a little super breath, Saving these two should be a breeze. Supergirl blows the mother and infant to safety. And I feel like that could have been done a little more gracefully. It right? really is not the best way to save them. Like, yeah. just pushes them back to the curb. They look alarmed as heck. I mean, I hope the, yeah. kid, the kid's all right. Uh, Fred Humpty's still trying to break, of course. Uh, when he does, he pitches forward and cracks his uh, uh, head on the steering wheel. And here, things get crazy. We mean... Really crazy, like even the art style gets kind of loose and uh, the panels take on some weird shapes here. Fred is really freaking out over the fact that his shell is cracking, uh, with good reason. I mean, it's pretty much his whole body as well. Yeah, I think I'd be freaking out too. Yep. Uh, now along comes a thin man atop a horse, dressed in red military uniform festooned with medals. So this would, uh, you know, be the horses and king's men from that uh, popular rhyme. It's Tricky by Run DMC? That very one. Now, the king's men hop off their horses with a paste pot and attempt to put Fred Humpty back together again. But guess what? What? No, no, you have to guess. Uh, they put him back together incorrectly? Nope. They can't put him back together again. Oh, right. Oh, goodness. In (laughs) fact, the last we see of Fred, all that remains is the top of his shell and some frantic-looking cartoon eyes. I bet he was delicious. Uh, (laughs) Now, Supergirl ushers the kids and Barco away from this gruesome scene. Sometime later, Supergirl and the kids are walking down a street. It's lined with houses fashioned to look like articles of clothing. And yes, of course, there is a shoe. That's right. Supergirl says, I hate to admit it, kids, but I think we're lost. If we don't get a ride soon, we're going to miss the dummy show. Uh, Supergirl, I don't want to tell you how to do your job or anything, but you can fly, right? Yeah. Like at tremendous speeds? I'm pretty sure, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's one of her things. Uh, Yeah, one of the things she's known for. Sally says, Look over there! I'm getting that funny feeling again, that somehow I've seen this house before. Well, the house you're pointing at does look like a high-top basketball sneaker. Oh, right. It was on my brother's feet. That's right. (laughs) Uh, A very long stretch limousine pulls up, and then the door on the side of the sneaker house opens, and about a zillion kids rush out into the limousine. In the frenzy, Supergirl, Barco, Sally, and Jack get picked up and brought along for the ride. The interior of the limousine isn't very typical. You mean it doesn't have a private champagne pool and solid gold fixtures? Uh, no. It's set up with bench sheets, more like a bus, so everyone can sit in rows. Man, you are are just living the high life, Chris, let me tell you. Sorry, yeah. Driving the limousine bus is uh, the little old lady, you know, the one that lived in a shoe, who looks more like a frazzled businesswoman in this version. Kind of like if Kathy from the self-titled comic, if she was like 60-plus years old, something like that. (laughs) Yes. Now, she has all the kids and Supergirl and Barco click their seatbelt buckles and check the person next to them to ensure they've done the same. A system that works despite the many rows of bench seating. Yeah, it actually would have worked better if the limousine did have couches lining the walls, right? It just could have yeah, got around looked, a little right across, yeah. clockwise or whatever. <laughs> uh, then the youngest of the bunch, wearing footy pajamas and a black and red six-panel cap, walks up front. 
He turns into the exa- he turns into an exact replica of a Harvey Kurtzman character and yells, "Buckle up, ma!" And so the old lady buckles up. Yeah, this character is right out of an old man magazine. Like, <laughs> I'd be surprised it doesn't say, you know, uh, apologies or you know, thanks yes. to Harvey Kurtzman. <laughs> there. So things are going swell as they cruise along the Motorville Freeway, and the whole gang is singing "Wheels to on the Car" to the tune of "Wheels on the Bus." Uh, I thought you said things were going swell. Well, for them they are, I guess. <laughs> then a loud horn from a truck behind the limousine cuts into their reverie. It's being driven by a very mean and very poorly drawn wolf. <laughs> I mean, it's not like the rest of this book looks like Dave Gibbons, but this wolf looks like something drawn on a cocktail napkin right here. For what sure. happened? <laughs> <laughs> now the truck pulls up closer to the limousine, forcing it to the side. A kid says, Ma'am, he's coming up fast! The old lady goes, Oh, tight, gang! This wolf's in a rush, and there's no room to pass! I'm glad you're all buckled up! And the wolf, we see him back there, and he says, Move it, move it, move it, move it! Oh, no! He's trying to squeeze through! The limousine is run off the road, and the front right tire pops. Oh, boy, a flat! Is everyone okay? We're fine. But I know one wolf who won't be able to say the same thing when I get through with him. Hey, Supergirl, how about you check the kids for injuries before zooming off to satisfy your need for cruel revenge on a wolf? Yeah, she was so quick to say, we're fine. Like, are you sure we're, you're fine? Yeah. Did you pass some x-ray vision over the kids? Like, well, <laughs> do your due diligence. Uh, Supergirl zips off after the wolf and his truck and uses her heat vision to melt the back wheel, forcing it to stop. And he still honks the entire time. Like, what is he honking at now? And, I mean, if you melt his wheel and he's he's driving a big rig, he could have flipped over and killed really a whole could, bunch right. of people. I mean, there are yeah. cars behind him as well while she does this. So, Certainly. Yeah, not the best move. No, not, not the best judgment. Uh, now, Supergirl peels back the truck's roof and pulls the anthropomorphic wolf out by the collar of his motorcycle jacket. He's already driving a truck. We really can't split hairs over him wearing a leather jacket, can we? Yeah, not really. I mean, we got talking eggs, so anything goes, yeah. obviously. Uh, the wolf says... Sweetie, 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 you're ruining my truck. Hey, easy on the jacket. I'm BB Wolf, and I can explain, but not right now, okay? I gotta hurry. I'm late. I'm tardy. I'm overdue. And Supergirl says, I don't care how late you are. You have no right to. Sure, sure, anything you say, honey. I'm wrong. I'm naughty. I'm a louse. I'm a heel only. Can't this wait? And no, actually, it can't wait, Mr. Wolf. And Supergirl leaves him cuffed and in the hands of law enforcement. Now, these Fables crossovers are getting weird, aren't they? <laughs> sure. uh, <laughs> now, Supergirl flies back to the limousine and fixes the flat tire. The old woman goes, You know, you really ought to think about a career as an auto mechanic. We can't have too many of them in a place like Motorville. Yes, well, um, uh, shouldn't we be getting back on the road? Wouldn't want to miss the show. Just then, three humanoid pigs pull up in a yellow convertible. One has a sensible haircut and wears a suit. One is a Hollywood type wearing a pink blazer and sunglasses and holds a tanning mirror. And one is, I guess, like a rocker? He's got like a leopard print blazer and earphones on, plus spiked hair. Of course. (laughs) The straight pig goes, "Uh, Hello, hello there. Excuse me, folks. Pardon the interruption, but my friends and I couldn't help but notice how terrific you were back there dealing with that wolf. In fact, we were uh, uh, hoping you could help us out. Would you mind accompanying us on our trip? I'm sorry, but we already have a... Oh, go ahead. You, we won't be insulted. Besides, this could be a big chance to meet new customers. And uh, you're also sticking up the limousine, you know. Uh, mainly got a Supergirl. dog in there. Mainly yeah. Supergirl, though. 
Uh, <laughs> so everyone hops in this convertible, and surprisingly, they fit rather comfortably. But, of course, the conversation quickly turns to... Just what is it that you want me to do, anyway? But before you answer that, don't you think we should all buckle up? The pig in a suit who's driving the car is buckled in, but the two in the back seat are not. Yeah, the Hollywood pig says, Hold it right there, pretty lady. No way does this pig do that belt thing. Don't get me wrong. I love the concept, safety in the whole bit. But those belts cut into my personal space. Can't have that. And the rocker pig goes, I hate them. <laughs> Don't look now. But there's a truck driving wolf pulling up in the rear. Another one. This is CC Wolf. And he goes, oh, road hogs. How disgusting. Why, they shouldn't be allowed in a car. The wolf hits the bumper of the pig's car, sending it into the back of the van in front of them. This sends the two pigs in the back seat flying high in the sky, and Supergirl unbuckles and flies off to catch him. Then Supergirl heads out to catch the wolf. He explains that he's CC Wolf, and BB Wolf is his kid brother. He shows Supergirl a photo of the family, the Wolf Pack, at the 1985 Wolf Pack convention in Motorville Plaza Grand Ballroom, and it's a picture of a lot of anthropomorphic wolves in clothing. Yeah, it looks like that, that, that picture in Watchmen of the old heroes. It right? kind of does look like that. I mean, they're all holding a banner, too. This, this whole scene, though, is just like, what? why? Okay, what uh, that's yeah. cool. <laughs> now, the cops take Cece Wolf away, and Supergirl returns to the kids. They tell her that the pigs went off to the hospital and ditched them. Then, a green car pulls up. Sally thinks it might be Linda Danvers, but instead it's the amazing Crash Dummies. Yeah, Vince says, howdy, folks. Have an accident? And Larry goes, that's very generous of you, Vince, but it looks like they've already had one. And that means they're our kind of people. Hop in. I don't believe it. You're the amazing dummies, says Jack. And, you know, this is kind of like, you know, wow, we're meeting celebrities we just learned existed 20 minutes ago. I know. Whoa, how lucky is that? Don't peek too soon, pal. <laughs> Sally, <laughs> Sally says, Yahoo! We're going to the show! I guess in good old Motorville, you're never stuck for long. Not with gams like you, super gal. That is for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, Vince and Larry drive the gang to their show, which takes place in an indoor arena. A freestanding brick wall with a white target painted on it is in the middle, and Vince and Larry are down there with their car, too. The arena is packed, and the crowd looks thrilled. Signs read, Motorville loves Vince and Larry, and Vince and Larry, we go to pieces over you. Oh, boy. Uh, now, Supergirl, Jack, Sally, and Barco have front row seats. Yep, the announcer announces all the action, says, Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Motorville Arena and the latest exploits of Vince and Larry, the amazing dummies. Okay, they're in the car. Larry's buckled up, but I don't think Vince is. He's taking an awful chance. They're picking up speed. They're heading right for the wall. It looks like they're going to... The car hits the wall head-on with a big crash. Supergirl flies down in order to attend to Vince and Larry, only to find that Larry is fine. But Vince had been launched through the windshield. But he's also fine. He's, he's you know, they, they don't live. They're dummies, yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's what they do. Uh, this is repeated for the rest of the show until Vince <laughs> is in pieces. I mean, this is, this is the show. This is this smashing into a wall over, over and over again. Uh, I'd probably watch it for a couple hours. Yeah. Uh, Supergirl wonders how they'll get home at this late hour, and Larry offers their backup car, which looks just like their old one in, uh, outside of the dream, uh, and suspiciously like the one Linda Danvers drove at the beginning of this book. 
Supergirl says they couldn't possibly take it, but Larry insists. Don't be silly. We won't be needing it anyway. We'll be here all night picking up pieces of Vince. Boy, that sounds like a lot of fun. For everyone else, not me. Why do you have to, what do you have to do except lie around and wait for people to put you back together? Sounds like a pretty good spot to yeah. be in. Uh, yeah, <laughs> digging around in bushes for body parts. Hey, come on, Vince. You guys were fantastic. From now on, we'll always wear our seatbelts. Then Jack shapes Vince's hand and pulls his arm right off. Oops, sorry. It happens. Well, I guess it's all for a good cause. Maybe Larry will let me wear the seatbelt at our next show. If you're going to leave it up to him, Vince, he's, he's never going to let you wear it. <laughs> you're going to have to assert yourself here. I think so. Now, uh, back in the waking world, Jack and Sally finally snap out of their backseat naps because Linda is in the front seat hollering at them to wake up because they're almost at their destination. Uh, where are they going, anyway? Their destination. Oh, right. Uh, <laughs> Sally mentions that she had quite a dream, and Jack agrees it was pretty weird. Wait, wait. So these kids had the same dream, and they, they somehow know it? Wow. I think we got to get them into testing, right? Some kind of paranormal research for sure. I think so. Sally says, So what happened in yours, Jack? Well, you were in it, Sally, and Barco, and gee, Linda, I don't think you were in it, though. Oh, no. The end. So wait a second. Wait a second. So how did Supergirl know that she was in the kids' shared dream? Uh -huh. how, did she, how did she know that? Yeah. How? Uh, right. So, the inside back cover has a special message from Supergirl that you can write yourself and a board game on the back cover, and we'll put those up in the show notes on our site, too. How did Supergirl know, though? Mm. Was, she, was she asleep at the wheel? Did she, did she force the dream on them? Did they all share the same dream? Is yeah. their car like the cone of silence? We're going to take a quick break right now, and we get back, we're going to talk to you about the history of the seatbelt. Hey, Charlie, looks like you could use a shoulder to cry on. There's one in here somewhere. Vince, what are you doing? Getting out of the crash dummy business. No way I'm ending up like Charlie did. But, Vince, how else can we prove safety belts save lives? We could buckle up. How many times I gotta tell you we're dummies? We don't wear safety belts. <laughs> Vince, Larry, your number's up. Couldn't save a life. No, I'm with you, partner. Yeah. Vince, break a leg. A regular comedian. You could learn a lot from a dummy. Buckle your safety belt. Hey, folks. Welcome back to the safety-minded episode of Cosmic Treadmill. Uh, we're going to do a little brief history of the seatbelt now. It was invented by English engineer George Cayley. He was an English engineer in the mid-19th century, and he intended these belts to keep pilots inside their gliders. I didn't even know they had gliders, but yeah. live and learn. The first patented seatbelt, however, was by an American, Edward J. Claghorn, on February 10th, 1885. Now, these belts, they were developed to keep tourists safe in New York City taxis, which probably bounced very mightily over cobblestone streets, and these would have been horse-drawn, obviously. Uh, this was really more of a belt that you clipped to the car, and it wasn't meant to save lives, but keep people inside their cars as they bucked along, you know. It's sort of, it's safer than nothing, right? But, sure. <laughs> uh, you know, it wasn't that great. Indeed, the patent says the belt can also be used in mechanical lifts for firemen and house painters and reads exactly, designed to be applied to the person and provided with hooks and other attachments for securing the person to a fixed object. Easy enough. Yeah. Now, uh, it wasn't until the mid-1930s that several U.S. physicians began testing lap belts in cars and immediately began urging manufacturers to provide them in all cars. Some did. Many did not. 
1946, neurologist Dr. C. Hunter Sheldon made a major contribution to the automotive industry with his idea of a retractable seatbelt. He got the idea due to a large number of head trauma injuries he'd treated at his practice. Hunter investigated the early seatbelts, whose primitive designs were implicated in these industries, in these in, uh, injuries and deaths. Uh, to, to reduce the high level of injuries he was seeing, he proposed in late 1955 retractable seatbelts, recessed steering wheels, reinforced roofs, roll bars, automatic door locks, and passive restraints such as the airbag. And most American car manufacturers said, that's nice. Uh, in 1954, Sports Car Club of America required competing drivers to wear lap belts during competitions, and in the following year, the Society of Automotive Engineers, SAE, appointed a motor vehicle seatbelt committee. American car manufacturers Nash in 1949 and Ford in 1955 offered seatbelts as options, while Swedish Saab first introduced seatbelts as standard in 1958. That same year, Volvo employed Swedish engineer Nils Bolin, developed a three-point seatbelt known as the SIR or CIR Griswold restraint, strapping across the lap and protecting the upper body from flying forward. We know, though, that's the belt we use today. Uh, after this, it did become standard in Volvos and Saabs. It was usually an optional add-on for American vehicles. In June 1960, a man named Wes Jane in Woodhaven, New York, wrote a letter to Popular Science magazine boasting about how he finally convinced his wife to wear a seatbelt. In it, Wes wrote, For ten years, I've used safety belts in my car, but each time we went for a ride, I would have to tell my wife to fasten her belt. She is the most stubborn person and uses all kinds of excuses for not doing so. I have finally won. These drawings show how. The system tells her how to tells her to put the belt on. It works like magic every time. It saves arguments. The little reminder consists of a light, the word safety belt, a buzzer, two cunningly wired snap switches. He continues, when my wife gets into the front seat beside me, her weight trips a normally open snap switch under the seat. Two things happen. First, a doorbell buzzer begins sounding behind the dash, attracting my wife's attention toward it. Second, in the opening where a clock usually is mounted, the words safety belt are illuminated by a lamp behind the dash. He goes on to say, The second snap switch, normally closed, is mounted under one strap of the belt, so it is opened by the pressure of pulling the belt across the waist. Uh, this breaks the circuit, stopping the buzzer and turning off the lamp. As long as my wife sits in the seat, she'd better have the belt on correctly, or the buzzer will let her know. Wes concludes to say, now when we start out, she races me to fasten the belt before I can use the ignition key and turn on the circuit. Seems she doesn't like to hear the buzz. The only way to stop the buzz is to get out of the seat or, or turn off the ignition or put on the belt. If she wants to go for a ride, that leaves her little choice. And he did include a little diagram, which included a cutoff switch for those that were so inclined. And Wes had inadvertently invented the seatbelt reminder alarm, though... U.S. manufacturers wouldn't begin using it until the early 1970s. Unsafe at any speed, the designed, the designed in Dangers of the American Automobile was a book by Ralph Nader, published in 1965, accusing car manufacturers of resistance to the introduction of safety features such as seatbelts and their general reluctance to spend money on improving safety. 
the subject for which the book is probably most widely known, the rear-engine Chevy Cor- Corvair, is covered in Chapter 1, The Sporty, Cor- Car- Bleh. The Sporty Corvair, a one-car accident. Yeah, and a, a two-car tie-up, a t- tongue-tie, yes. I don't know. <laughs> Indeed. Now, the first, 1960 through 64 models, had a rear engine and a swing-axle suspension design, which was prone to tuck under in certain cir- circumstances. To make up for cost-cutting lack... To make up for the cost-cutting lack of a front anti-roll bar, Corvairs required an unusually high front to rear pressure differential. That's 15 PSI in the front, 26 PSI in the rear when cold, and 18 PSI and 30, 30 PSI when hot. And if one inflated one of the inflated tires, and if one inflated the tires equally, the result was a dangerous oversteer. Which of course most people would just do because who wants to sit and check the PSI on your tires yeah. all day? Exactly. Uh, the book also railed against chromed dashboards, non-standard gear shifting patterns, the failure of automobile companies to honor warranties, frame and body strength, emissions, and stylized and therefore ineffectual bumpers. He also claimed there was a concerted effort to cover up poor engineering by blaming drivers for accidents and, of course, Nader champion seatbelts. In 1966, Congress passed the National Traffic and Motor Vehicle Safety Act, requiring all automobiles to comply with certain safety standards, including seatbelts for all passenger seats. The world's first seatbelt law was put in place in 1970 in the state of Victoria, Australia, making the wearing of a seatbelt compulsory for drivers and front seat passengers. Though they were required by law to be in cars, wearing seatbelt laws were a different story. The National Ad Council ran countless ads for 25-plus years encouraging drivers to buckle up. States slowly started implementing laws, and by 1995, every state except New Hampshire had click-it-or-ticket laws. Currently, all states have seatbelt enforcing laws, though in New Hampshire, only children are legally required to be restrained. That's the only free state left in the Union, I say. It is. Live free or die, <laughs> as the state motto likes to go. I was going to say. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's also, I believe they also have an optional motorcycle helmet law, which is like, why don't you just have, like, legalized suicide? Why don't you just do that? Just legalize <laughs> suicide, and then people can do whatever they want. Uh, yeah, so that wraps up our uh, look at those Supergirl PSAs and a little bit of uh, automotive history. And now, finally, we are going to deal with some of the mail that we've gotten over two months, something like that. Several months, yeah. It's, before it's, age of a pre-age of apocalypse. All yes. pre-age of apocalypse, and I think even <laughs> going back a few weeks before that. So we, we will see mentions here, mentions to that here, and probably the things even older. So uh, first is from our pal Jeremiah Jones Goldstein. He's at BigOx737, has a blog, comicscomicscomics.blog. He says, Chris, Reggie, I enjoyed the most recent episode quite a bit. I'm not sure what that was. I thought you had... It was handled... 98, I believe. Oh, was this the uh, Kill Image, probably? This oh, no, a, no, this, this was, was the Nightwing, Nightwing one, yeah. yeah. Uh, I thought you handled the, the topic and controversial nature of it well. I certainly learned quite a lot about Devin Grayson, including the fact that she's a woman. I never know. I never do anything about her before your podcast, and it was all very interesting. I'm a big fan of Daredevil and the Born Again storyline, and I have enjoyed the Nightwing issues that Chris has reviewed over at Infinite Earths. That's his blog. That have been in a, uh, that have a very similar plot. I guess it is believable that Grayson was unaware of the story when she was writing the Nightwing version, but there's no way her editors were not. Good point. Oh well, water under the bridge point. now. That's a very good point. Mm -hmm. Uh, He continues to say, I really enjoyed your discussion on other cases of major fan backlash. And Reggie is 100% correct. You have to pick your battles. I could not agree more. 
I think that you're also spot on when you said that because of some backlash and complaining has worked is why it continues and even for even the most ridiculous things. Obviously, the social nature of the Internet now, Facebook, Twitter, etc., has really gone a long way to giving even the smallest groups a voice. They're no longer restricted to message boards filled with like-minded individuals. Uh, the only comment I would add is that I thought it funny that you did not mention the recent fervor over the Captain America Hydra story and all the attention it received. That's true, it did. Uh, in this case, I think a lot of the criticism was warranted. I thought the whole idea was rather insensitive, which was the reason I did not buy any of the comics after I read issue number one. Hey, my choice, right? I don't want to read about Captain America, a character created by two Jewish men becoming a Nazi that I don't have to. Anyway, congrats on another fine episode. Now that you are really closing on episode 100, which we did already, <laughs> I am very much looking forward to hearing what you've got planned. I expect it will probably be something special. And of course, thank you very much, Jeremiah. We, mm -hmm. we agree with uh, most of your points there, very, very much so. Uh, yeah. Picking your battles about fa fan backlash. And picking our battles is probably one of the reasons we didn't discuss the Captain America. That thing. was like I was gonna say exactly <laughs> it. Uh, we we did talk about it, but actually, without getting too deep into the uh, stuff surrounding it, uh, yeah. it was also lacking kind of that unified cuteness of heat, or you know the the Stephanie. Yeah. Like there, there there was a certain playfulness to the other stuff. Yeah, this we, was just mean. <laughs> there was a meanness abound on every yeah. side and just a lot of yelling and no concerted effort to mail waffles anywhere. So that was it. That's but <laughs> it definitely, you know, in terms of fan backlash, but I mean, if we just wanted to talk about fan backlash in the social media era, that could do a whole era. That could do a whole episode. No problem. So, yeah. Wow. <laughs> now we'll move on to the next piece of mail. Also from Jeremiah. Yeah. This is uh, this is in regards to I believe episode ninety nine. Yeah. He says, Chris Reggie, I really enjoyed the the American Splendor episode. Each time you do an episode about underground comics, I feel like I should really look into them. It's a whole realm of comic work I've never really been interested in until I listened to your podcasts. I've seen both the American Splendor movie, which I enjoyed, and the Crumb documentary, which left me feeling funny and not necessarily in a good way, <laughs> yep. which we agree. <laughs> so I have at least some awareness of the topics you've discussed. As always, your podcast really brought the subject matter to life, and I gained some new application for whatever the topic might be. Keep up the good work, and I'll be listening. Yeah, thanks and, very much for that, of course. Um, yes, that crumb film is kind of kind of, kind of grimy. It's very dark, but I'll tell you, yeah. it, it definitely, if you have looked at Crumb's artwork, it definitely fills in some of the gaps on how that uh, sure. how some of that mindset came to be, you know, and, uh, you know, a how a repressed mind can be unleashed later on, I guess, is kind of the thing Absolutely. about that. But yeah, it's all his family is messed up, boy, I'll tell you what. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, Underground Comics is something I like a lot, and uh, American Splendor is a, you know, it's a, an acquired taste maybe, but... It's an experience, yes. It's definitely, there's plenty of it out there to be seen if you want to check it out, so... Thanks very much and uh, for writing in, Jeremiah. Uh, now on to Steve Baum. He says, hey guys, I know this is an older episode, but I just found your podcast and love the character of the century. So I gave it a listen and really enjoyed it. You've got yourself a new subscriber. Awesome. Thrilled to hear it, Steve. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. we, we were talking about that new century, right, recently? Yes, uh, recently. The Jeff the, Lemire, the and yeah. uh, I don't know who's drawing it, and uh, we felt like they should have they left it. Yeah, they well, should have left it with that one series. <laughs> that was yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, we'll move on to another piece of mail by Matt Rapier. He says, hey, guys, I sent Chris a message on Facebook about his review website and wanted to send an email to the both of you. I told Chris that I recently sold off my 5,000-plus single-issue collection of comics. Oof. I love that's That's hard, yeah. <laughs> uh, I love comics, and I would hate to be disconnected from this world, so between Cosmic Treadmill and Weird Science, I feel like I'm fully covered and can still maintain a good connection to all these books. My first dive into comics was age seven. The Death of Superman had just been released, and I was hooked from that moment. I quit collecting around 1996 and jumped back in around 2003-2004. The Lost Heart Superman story and, and Infinite Crisis really pulled me in, and I've been trying to gain as much comic knowledge to this very day. He goes on, uh, I know you guys have plenty of suggestions coming in and ideas of your own for topics, but I'll throw in a few that you can add to the list of potentials. The Superman Lost Heart Story from 2003, Infinite Crisis, The Question Series from Rick Veach in 2005, Dial H from China, Mayville, 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 The Superman Blackout Story from 1991 to 92. I really do appreciate all the hard work you two put into doing this podcast. It's fun to learn all this knowledge about the comic and creators and the year it all happened. As mentioned with Weird Science, too, for someone like me who is having to abandon a first-hand connection to comics for now, it means the world to me to have places I can go to still maintain that love for it. Keep up the phenomenal work. He continues, another request, should you ever find time, that could make for an interesting episode. Action Comics 601. It seems with this book, Action Comics became an all-characters title with various stories each week. I'd love to see you guys dive into and discuss why the changes were made to go that direction and if sales improved or remained the same. Thanks again, guys. And as a matter of fact... Yeah, we got we, something going on here! We have a pretty big Action Comics Weekly uh, project in the works. It yep. uh, shouldn't be too long from now. Uh, it, uh, it'll probably be a series of episodes, actually, and we will discuss all the reasons why it changed, all the reasons why it changed back, Absolutely. all the people involved, uh, all the pitches that came before, and uh, even some stuff that came after. So... Uh, look forward to that in the uh, in the coming weeks uh, to months. Yeah, it's gonna, it's going to be. It might be November, but we it is in the works right now. And boy, mm. it is a whopper, and it is complete. And uh, it's about a very fun time in comics. So absolutely, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, we've got another mail from Craig Taylor. He said, "Just dropping in to give the Cosmic Treadmill some love. Can we have a feature story on Pussy by Daniel Close? I think it's one of the very best books on history, on the history of comics, but never seems to get all the respect it deserves. Or Enemy Ace by George Pratt. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Two ends of the spectrum. Sure. Uh, inside that one, Craig. You know, definitely going to do a Daniel Close. Um, there are a couple things we could do. But, yeah, uh, I would say a general yes. To that. Oh, for sure, for sure. <laughs> now we have another piece of mail from uh, Jeremy Daw, who has a, a blog called The Muttering Muse That's at right. jddunsnay at .wordpress.com. I don't know how to pronounce that. I don't know how to pronounce many words. So I don't say. I don't know what that. We is. We'll, we'll we'll do we'll do it one better. We'll just put it in the show notes. That's a good I, idea. Yeah. I can't speak. Uh, he says, "Greetings, gentlemen. I'm a bit behind on listening to the Cosmic Treadmill, but I just heard episode 98, and as with the creepy episode, thought it was an excellent and informative listen. I'd already read Chris's excellent review of Nightwing number 93 on his blog, so I had a fair idea of what was to expect. What I was to expect, or rather, I thought I did." 
For one thing, I hadn't been prepared for just how uncomfortable a listening experience would be hearing the two of you read out the infamous Tarantula Nightwing scene. It's never going to stop. Certainly felt like it. And I raise a metaphorical glass of something very alcoholic to both of you for going above and beyond the call of duty on this issue. I kind of feel a bit sorry for Grayson, the writer, not the character, and hope that her rehabilitation as a comic book writer continues. The whole not-rape-but-consensual-sex thing is a bit ridiculous and does feel like it might have been imposed on her from somewhere on high, something I hadn't considered until you raised the, the possibility in the episode. The stuff from Inheritance, that's the in-canon DC novel. Yeah, novel. Very weird novel. <laughs> he says, the stuff from Inheritance, though, made my toes curl. I'm no longer baffled or amazed by what publishing companies will put out these days. But that was pretty grim stuff. That really did uh, beyond the pale, that stuff. It was crazy. Yeah. Uh, unlike the episode, which was of its characteristic blend of excellent research, shrewd insight, and extremely pleasant presentation, I'm sorry that I've not written in properly before now, but you guys do put out a quality podcast every week, and there's always something new to discover. The rundown of controversies and fan protests in comics was very informative and food for thought for anyone who thinks that the current state of comics fandom is unusually toxic. There have always been fans who take their passion about their favorite thing too far, although I do think the immediacy of social media tends to make things a bit worse. Still, I am relieved to hear that thousands, question mark, of Stephanie Brown fans didn't send waffles to DC through the post. That could have been... Messy, yeah, for sure. Especially if they uh -huh. were still frozen, could have been a hole, could have been a wreck. <laughs> Thanks again for everything you do. It's very much appreciated. I had, for example, no idea that Terry Long is considered a Mary Sue for Marv Wolfman, which not only makes certain amount of sense, there's surely no way the guy would have made it through 50 issues of the Noon T Titans and survived the wedding <laughs> otherwise. It's true. Uh, but also rather creepy. Looking forward to seeing what you come up with in the coming weeks. He wraps up with, if you're looking for some inspiration, not that you think, not that I think you need any, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Richard Corbin or some of the Spanish artists that rose to prominence in the Warren magazines and heavy metal. I'm going through a bit of a 70s black and white comic magazine phase at the moment, I must confess. And he closes with, all the best. Uh, definitely good consider that. I do want to do, you know, a thing on heavy metal and that scene a little bit sure. eventually. So, yeah. uh, sure, that's all in the works. And I, I want to do more of those boring comics too someday. Yeah, those were fun. Yeah, that, that, that was creepy. fun. Yeah. Uh, Matthew Downs wrote to say, Wow, you guys are doing a great job with Age of Apocalypse story line. But I'm still working on reviewing issues of it myself, and you guys are doing a great job. I noticed that there are things I missed in my review of some of these issues. It's great to hear other people over the series. Okay, now a little poking fun. I have to ask, is Gambit Jamaican or a Jamaican <laughs> Irishman? Reggie's voice is funny as a Cajun. And, uh, yeah, it's terrible. You know, I remember after we did the first episode of Age of Apocalypse, which was episode 100, yeah. uh, I wrote to you, like, do you have a better bad Cajun accent than I do? Because I'll give, I wanted to give Gambit away because it's... It's tough, folks. I can't, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and not only did I say, no, it's still yours, I made sure we had Gambit lines in almost every episode going <laughs> you, forward. You really, <laughs> you really put me through my paces with that. Uh, you know, I it might it might amaze people to know that Chris and myself are not uh, trained voice actors at all. No and, way. Uh, yeah, we, we, you know, I remember there was another time, what was, oh, was the, uh, the uh, Uncle Scrooge one? <laughs> I, I wrote to you and I asked, 
Do you do you have a bad Scottish accent? Because my bad Scottish accent is terrible. And I'm basically like, which of our worst, which is the least worst, is like my, my question. So, which is the most entertaining? I guess that's the other thing too. So, if, if, you, if you were entertained, uh, I, I'm sure there are some actual Cajun people out there that may not have been entertained. That I apologize, but if you were entertained, then uh, it all worked out. And thanks very much, Matthew. Then we'll wrap up with another missive from Jeremiah. He says, uh, Chris, Reggie, I really enjoyed your six-episode series on the Age of Apocalypse. I probably enjoyed your coverage more than the actual series. I think my wife liked what she heard of it. It reminded us that it was the first big event she'd ever read. She'd only started reading a few months before it came out. I do know that we both like this event much more than the Onslaught event that followed however long after this one. Yes, that is very true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I did want to mention one thing, though, and I hate to sound like this guy. But Reggie mentioned the whole Daredevil San Francisco story where suddenly everyone forgot that they knew that Daredevil was Matt Murdock. Charles Soule actually did explain that it happened in issues 17 through 20 of the most recent volume, which is the Running with the Devil story. It all had to do with the machine the Purple Man had built and the Purple Man's kids. It was a pretty decent story. Again, I don't mean to sound like that, a kind of a dork who sends corrections and nonsense, but... Oh, I mean, please, everyone, and Jeremiah, to send corrections. You know, we definitely, for sure, for we sure. definitely want corrections where we, we've made mistakes. Uh, in that yeah, case, we, though... We did say we didn't know, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know. I, I, yeah. I dropped that book after issue 12, and I think he's actually talking about the volume, the next volume after, you know what I mean? So it's not even oh, the boy. volume in which I dropped it. So it's, <laughs> it's I believe, I could be wrong, but... I did drop uh, it after issue 12 because I was just so bored and annoyed that we still really had no okay. clarification yeah. on that. No clarification. But, uh, yeah. but I, I thank you for letting me know that it was eventually explained. Sure. I'm glad to know that they handled it at some point, uh, you know, they get around to it. It's not still a, it's not still dangling, yeah. Exactly, you know, it's like even 10 years down the line or something. <laughs> but anyway, uh, he wraps up to say, I've also been listening to the Young Animal episode you've been releasing. Your coverage is, was really excellent. The Shade comic sounds great. One of these days, I'll get through that stack of Doom Patrol I have. I did read Cave Carson and enjoyed it, and that was the trippy book towards the end. I did have to laugh when Reggie said in the second or third episode that you were looking forward to having one of these issues to cover every week. Wow, that did not work out. Uh, nope. <laughs> anyway, congratulations, 106 episodes. I'm looking forward to seeing what you discuss next week. Keep up the good work. I'll be listening. And thank you very much, as always, Absolutely. Jeremiah. And we're uh, so sorry it took this long to uh, to get to the mail. Yeah, we're very sorry. We're going to try to do this, I think, once a month if we can. If there's so, At least if there's a reason to do it, we'll, sure, we'll, sure. we'll try to handle some of our uh, house cleaning here. But thanks, everyone, to writing in. We also have uh, some iTunes reviews, we might tackle those next week, uh, but sure. this episode is getting long in the tooth. Uh, <laughs> if you do want to write to us and uh, eventually someday hear your letter on the ep on a, an episode, <laughs> you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. And find us at Facebook, facebook.com slash history. We're on Twitter at CosmicTmill, and I'm on Twitter at ReggieReggie. I'm at Ace Comics. Uh, you can check out our weekly writings on on DC Comics at uh, on new DC Comics at WeirdScienceDCComics.com, uh, where uh, we do new comics. And Reggie, you're doing uh, retro reviews uh, throughout That's the week. Right. Now. I am doing retro. I did uh, Lois Lane 38. I did another Lois. I think every Tuesday there's going to be an old Lo uh, Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane review. Cool. So if that seems like something you want to read, 
then uh, head over there on Tuesday. But if you want to read an, a review of an older DC comic every day of the week, you go over to Chris's on InfiniteEarth.com, where he does just that. And lately, he's really been putting some Reggie bait out there. I'll tell you what, <laughs> some really nice uh, Bronze Age, some old school Silver Age jammies. I'm, I love what I'm seeing. Uh, but it really could come from any point. I'm telling you, this is this this is the kind of website I think if you've never seen it or if you haven't looked at it in a while, just like find find a rainy night and just hang out on there for like three hours. You'll be you'll have a blast. Uh, a ton of weird stuff. Yes, for sure. Chris, <laughs> Chris is on InfiniteEarth.com. Is the place. You can check out the show site, uh, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com. There you'll find our show notes, links, images, all that good stuff, plus a chronological listing of all of the episodes of all of our series, The Cosmic Treadmill, Weird Comics History, and as Jeremiah was al- alluding to in his letter, The Weird, a- uh, the, weird the Young Animal <laughs> series, where we're compiling old uh, segments of a weird, uh, weird science uh, young animal uh, discussions into compressed condensed versions here and uh releasing them it should be an 18 week pro- project and uh as of this recording we are one third of the way through look at that uh this you know this is also that's an imprint that's defunct now uh yeah for all intents and purposes so this is a good way to look at it as a as a big old wrap-up and we get pretty in-depth into the business side of it at certain episodes too so uh that's pretty cool if you want to go check that out plus uh, you can hear a little bit of the Young Ones theme song, so that's nice. It's true. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I think that's uh, a pretty solid episode, and that's all. Is that all we got for him this week, Chris? Got anything else for him? I think that'll do us. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill and click it. See ya. Drink. Drink.